Hey everybody, this is episode 32 of Artist Soapbox. Artist Soapbox is a podcast featuring Triangle Area artists talking about their work, their plans, their manifestos. I am Tamara Kassane. Today I'm talking with Dan Sipp, a Chapel Hill native who has worked in the theater as an actor, director, and teacher for nearly 30 years. He began his improv career with Transactors Improv Company and performed with them for nearly 15 years. In 1998, he moved to Chicago and spent eight years studying, performing, and directing improvisational theater. He returned to the Triangle to run the I.O. South Training Center in Raleigh. He currently performs with and directs his improv company, Third Date. In the first part of this episode, we talk about Dan's experience with improv and with Third Date. In the second half of the episode, we dive into Dan's work with the Medical Improv Initiative within the Duke Healthcare System. Dan started working in medical education as a standardized patient, actor, and volunteer patient advocate in the Duke University Health System. He later joined the staff of Campbell University's Osteopathic School of Medicine as a standardized patient program director. He's now the standardized patient training coordinator for the Duke University's School of Medicine. In 2016, Dan launched the Medical Improv Initiative at Duke with Dr. Ray Barfield. Since then, they've offered dozens of interprofessional workshops for learners of all levels in the Duke healthcare system. Last August, Dan organized the first ever meeting of medical improv instructors from institutions around the country at Duke. I loved talking with Dan. This is a really rich conversation with so many applicable takeaways. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, Dan. Hi, Tamara. How are you? I'm good. Thanks for being here. Thank you. It's really great to be talking to you. I would like to start with something that you said to me when we had our phone conversation. You said, once I found improv, I knew I wanted to do that with my life. Yeah. How did how did that discovery come about? Well, I think it came to me at a time in my life when I really needed something like that. I had gotten so, I feel like I'd gotten so diverted from what I really wanted to do. In high school, I wanted to be an actor. And uh, through a series of compromises, I ended up not being an actor and not majoring in theater in college and working in local television as a cameraman and uh, and gra- doing graphics work. And I was really, really unhappy in it. It's not creative work. And I felt like I really missed um, having a creative outlet. Uh, a lot of my friends were in bands. I really wanted to be in a band and I have no musical, <laughs> no musical ability whatsoever. So I started doing a little bit of stand up uh, at open mic nights and, and uh, stand up's a tough gig. And I, I kind of had really mixed success. I think most people starting out are, would be lucky to have mixed success. So, um, and then one day, my my brother called me, my younger brother called me on the phone and said that a f- woman we knew in high school was in this improv group and they were looking to get a new member because somebody was leaving. And so I ended up having a conversation with her and that group was Transactors. And when they started, when she started explaining about like being in a professional company that toured around and we did improv comedy and she explained to me what improv was and I was just, I had this moment of clarity in my life that was so unlike me at that time in my life is like, oh my God, this is the thing. This is what I want to do. I, and I had this moment of, of like resolve again, very unlike me at that time in my life it was like, 
I'm going to audition for this group. I'm going to get in and this is what I'm going to do. I found it. And somehow that all happened. And, uh, and then I was a member of Transactors for, for like 10 years. And it was just, I knew when I was in Transactors and we were touring around and everything, I, I said, this is the best job I'm ever going to have. I'm never going to have a job that's better than this. What, what is it or was it that created that clarity for you and that resolve? Like, what is it about improv that lit your fire? Well, it's an opportunity to be, to be funny kind of off the cuff. And uh, I felt like I tried to write some, you know, of course, in doing stand-up, I tried to write some. And I felt like that never quite captured the fun that I had you know, telling stories with my friends and, and riffing off people and stuff like that. I mean, since I was fairly young, I'd gotten feedback from people I knew that I was, I was pretty funny. But, you know, there's something different about being funny at parties or being able to tell a funny story and being a funny performer. But I really wanted to be a comic actor. And here was an opportunity to do that without having to memorize lines and I could sort of express my own points of view and stuff like that. So um, I, I thought it sounded like the thing I wanted to do. And then as soon as I started doing it, it was like, oh yeah, this is it. I found it. One of your goals is to legitimize improv. Yeah. What does that mean? Well, I think that um, improv has um, a lot of trouble being legitimate. I think even in the minds of a lot of people who do improvisation, I think it, if you ask improvisers, you know, how do you define the work that you do? Do you think of yourself as an artist? And they go like, no, I'm just trying to make people laugh. Hmm. Okay, well, there's a, there's a craft to that. There's an art to that. I think even improvisers kind of struggle with that. It's so ephemeral. You have to see um, you have to see it live. That's where it really shines. It doesn't do as well on video. That it, it's hard to make a permanent record. It's hard to have a show reel. It's hard to have, like, if you're in a band, you put out records and say, see, I did that, you know, and then you tour around supporting that record. There's, you can't do a good improv scene and then do that scene for five years. You have to go see a group. You, that group has to have a good show that night. A lot of groups are mediocre to worse, you know, because a lot of people are getting up on stage and trying to learn their craft. They're, they're, they're not fully baked yet, you know? And so people come to see those shows and they go like, oh, I, I don't like improv. People rarely say, hey, somebody recommended that I go to see a band. I've never seen a band. I don't know what bands are. Like, I've heard of bands, but I don't really know what that is. And now I'm going to go to the Cat's Cradle, watch 30 minutes of a band and say, I don't like rock music because I saw this one band one time and they sucked, right. you know, but that's, that's what improv has, has to deal with. And it's delegitim or it's, it's, you know, not legitimized by the local media. Like they won't review improv shows. It, this has been a known thing for a long time. I'm not sure why that is, but I, I know that's the case. And you can't study improvisation. You know, you can't go to college and get a degree in improvisation. You can get a degree in acting and directing, all these kinds of things in theater, but there's no subclassification for improvisation. Uh, so you can't get, you know, legitimacy from a an institution. So people have to come see your shows and say, oh, you're you're good at this. I know improv. I've seen other shows. I can compare your show to another show. Mm -hmm. And but there's no like, 
uh, official, like, here's my degree from Improv University or for, for crying out loud, Northwestern University. It's in Chicago or NYU that has is a great acting school or Yale, you know, these great acting schools. Where's the great, the great improv school? You, you can't major in improvisation. And that, there's something weird about that. So I want to dig in a little bit to this idea of that you mentioned of being fully baked, of, right. of building the skills that you need to become a great improviser. Right. What are those skills and how do you build them? I think the skills are, uh, you know, you, you should have a good sense of humor. I think a lot of people who stick with improvisation for a long time are also very smart. Not only do you have to be, you know, quick-witted, but if, if you're doing like long-form improvisation, which people who stay in improv for a long time generally transition at some point to doing long form improvisation. You've got to kind of have a sense of where the show is, what's what's happening, what needs to happen. You have to remember what's already happened and uh, trying to make that piece kind of gel. Uh, a lot of that is group dynamics. But, um, but like having that understanding of the form and, and your craft, I think really helps a lot. Um, certainly it helps to, to listen and and I feel like a really underrated part of improvisation. You hear this um, drum beat a lot in the world of improv. Uh, I don't know how much it's known outside. Is the idea of being a supporting player? So you have somebody who um, can play very efficiently. I don't need to dominate this scene to make this scene better. I can uh, listen to what you're saying and add stuff to it that is complementary. Or if you're pushing in a certain direction, I can, a lot of times we'll say, I can add more fuel to that fire. Um, and, and a lot of the, the instincts that we have to be a good person offstage make for bad improv scenes. Like if somebody's really sad, then you would comfort them in real life like a good friend would do. In improvisation, the, the instinct is actually the opposite is you want to fuel their sadness or explain why they're ridiculous for being sad or something like that. So like understanding kind of what a scene needs. And, uh, and I'm really fortunate um, because I've, I've had an opportunity to play with some really amazing supporting players. And I think, you know, a shout out to my friend Jenny Spencer in Third Date, who I think is one of the great supporting players of all. Not that she's not a terrific improviser in a number of ways, but she is very efficient on stage. She's very selfless on stage. She does a lot of things as far as managing the form, uh, knowing when to edit scenes and stuff like that. That's, uh, that's really amazing. Nancy Bacar, uh, is is a is a really fearless player, and Nancy also knows you know when to push and when to not push. You know, so so they're they're, they're both terrific like that. It's a, they just happen to be women. I I know a, a number of folks who are really terrific supporting players who are guys too. Let's talk a little bit about you mentioned Jenny and and Nancy. Yeah, and they are part of the ensemble of Third Date, yes. which is a long-form ensemble that you formed in 2012 mm -hmm. with Jay Chichula, Jenny Spencer, and Nancy Picard. Picard. Why did you form the ensemble? Well, the original idea with Third Date was uh, we were going to have a rotating cast and was going to be basically a different cast every show. That worked – well, we, we worked on that for about a year and a half. Uh, and what we found is when we brought new people into the ensemble – we had to really coach them on our style of play, which was much more realistic. We weren't going for big characters or, or 
the kind of laughs that people often are, are you know, pursuing in regular improv. It, it it was a different set of instincts, and it we'd have like a six or eight week rehearsal process, and it really felt like the first five weeks of it were reassuring the person this will work. We've done it. We you know this will work, and um, it just felt like a lot of work to to produce those shows. And and what happened is. Uh, we ended up, the four of us ended up, we were an ensemble for, for a show and we ended up doing the show and it wasn't very well attended. And I felt really frustrated because rehearsals had gone so well and we didn't get a chance to show everybody what we could do. So I decided to use the same ensemble for the next show. And the next show went really well. And we went, why are we constantly reinventing the wheel? This, this was a great idea but the practicality of it is 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 tough. So uh, we we became this ensemble, and I kept expecting Jay uh, to you know he has his own theater company. He teaches a lot. I I thought Jay was going to step aside at some point, and he and I had a number of conversations about that. And finally, he said, "No, I'm going to keep doing third date." So that's how this ensemble sort of cemented. At the beginning of our conversation, you talked about being interested in improv because you wanted to be funny on yeah. stage. But I know with Third Date and with other um, improvisation that you do, it's not about being funny. Mm-hmm. What was the evolution of that way of thinking? And how mm-hmm. does how does being funny fit with the work that you do? Well, we constantly are checking ourselves on the idea of being funny or not. Um I, what I like to say is our show is a comedy show that sometimes is serious. We're not a serious show that's sometimes comic. And when our shows kind of fall off the path, they tend to become more serious and less humorous. I like those serious scenes to be a surprise. Uh, and we don't plan whether a scene is going to be serious or funny. At, at first, it was really challenging for us to do serious, grounded high stakes scenes, scenes that were important to the two characters that we're seeing. Uh, it was really hard to do that. And we practiced that so much that I think now our challenge in rehearsal is, I, I remember our last rehearsal last week, I said, we're really going to focus on comic scenes tonight. And Jay going like, I don't know how to do that. <laughs> I'm just like, we do it all the time. What are you talking about? You, you can't start joking around off stage. So, you know, I mean, this this has got to be something that we can relearn how to do like have we really gotten to that point so yeah i mean i think um we like those those moments where a scene unexpectedly turns in that direction um if you do too many serious scenes they lose their impact and i just and i feel like you can craft such better you know high stakes scenes in written you know in in traditional theater so these really have to work as a change of pace i think that you're also interested with the third date ensemble in playing the sort of minutiae of life yes. in our world, the realistic moments right. in our conversation. You said no unicorns. Right. So, <laughs> right. Why is that of interest to the ensemble? Well, I feel like um, we want our shows to be relatable to the audience. Um, I, I think it's something I've preached in classes for years, and I don't know that I I was really walking the talk um, the way I should have. And and the idea is, you know, what 
what do we want our audience to take away from our show? So we thought a lot about that and talked a lot about that in rehearsal, about how to create a show that we feel like is is a piece that feels like it's a connected piece, like it, these pieces fit together. Watching sort of the ebb and flow of energy in the show so that we, uh, so that, you know, we don't follow a lot of scenes that have the same energy and they start, it has a sameness to it, which you get in a lot of improvisation. But like really being, being thoughtful about those things and what, and, and what do we want the audience to take away? Like what, what, what the, what's the ride we want to take them on? And so, uh, I think traditional theater directors always think about that. And I don't know that, that improv does a lot. So, we think we feel like we want to play do scenes about things that we know uh, as a writer people are told write about what you know write about your experience and that's what we're trying to do as a matter of fact uh my wife sometimes will say after a show i remember you saying that to me or I, that that was very similar to something that happened with us and you know i try not to divulge too much um but but oftentimes scenes are a mix of things that i've thought of or things that have happened to me and we that becomes the that becomes the seed for the scene you don't want to relive moments of your life you don't want to fix your life on stage it's that's <laughs> that's not not a good idea um but uh <laughs> Uh, because it's still just on stage, and by, by the way, your life is not fixed. Right, you know, right. by, by the way. Uh, but uh, this idea of of like mining your real experiences, um, we have we have a number of of scenes that are that that start off by like saying, you know, as we're in rehearsal, I'll say, I've been thinking about this thing. We've been talking a lot about the the Me Too movement in in rehearsal, and uh, and. A lot of other elements of politics and say, like, you know, how can we pull elements from that without being overtly political? We had a scene in a show not too long ago about a guy that was um, hugging in, hugging too long at, at work. And uh, and I think the, the interesting thing that we sort of stumbled on that, like Jenny was was a coworker who was a who was a little higher up in the organization than than me. And 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 I asked this question, you know. So why are you trying to help me? You know, what, why? And I don't know that we really resolve that in, in that scene, but like stumbling on that moment of clarity, like this is a guy that's obviously, you know, being kind of creepy at work. He's a, here's a, a person who's like managing him. She's a younger woman. You know, she didn't appreciate the hugs. Why, why are you? defending someone like that. And we didn't answer that question. I, maybe we, sh- maybe we could have, or maybe we should have, um, I, I love like putting that question out there and then letting the audience think about that and maybe and, and hopefully talk about that on the way home, you know, asking good questions, maybe, and not giving people answers. So it seems like there are multiple things that you're working with in, in building these skills around improvisation. One is understanding the form yes. and being able to track how to build an evening for the audience. Right. And, you know, so, so that's, that's one piece is this, the structure and the rules. The other piece has to do with playing well with others, skillfully yes. with others on stage. Yes. And then the other piece is being able to zero in on moments that are worth exploring. Yeah. Because when we're talking about 
mining from our real lives. There's lots of stuff that happens in our real life that's pretty boring, and mm-hmm. it doesn't. Right. It, it, it's not revealing. It doesn't ask these questions, and so it's being able to have a sense for those particular moments, those specific moments that reveal something about who we are individually, who we are in relationship, and who we are as a community. Mm-hmm. And so it's all of those three, and maybe there are more, yeah. but those three streams coming together to create a really powerful performance. Yeah. Um, it It's very complicated making an improv show work. And I think that's one of the reasons why it often, that's one reason why it often doesn't work. And why it why it's very complex when you talk about uh being supportive to people that you play with a big part of that is playing with people you like to play with a lot of improv groups are these kind of combinations of like people that are picked by the theater to be on a team and maybe they like playing together maybe they play well together maybe not so it's really easy to be a supporting player when you like the person and you like their work um and I think that's one reason why a lot of improv shows don't work. They, there's some element. They haven't mastered their form. They haven't thought about their form and how – they thought about their form and how it relates to them and how they're improvising. But they haven't thought outside of that to think, how does this affect the audience? What do we want the audience to take away from this? It's, it's some, an idea that was introduced to me in some corporate training workshops that I was uh, helping to facilitate. It's like when people are doing business presentations – the whole it's not it's not about flashy graphics or all that kind of stuff it's like what do you want people to say about this project after you leave uh and how do i communicate that and so it's sort of taking that same idea and putting putting it uh, together it's a uh, i've been in a lot of improv groups and i've been fortunate to be in a lot of good improv groups most of them had some level of dysfunction around one of those things and so that's to me why third date has been so great. Um, everybody's super experienced. We all like playing together and we all believe in what we're trying to do and we, we, we're pushing towards that. We're also not looking for our next gig. Like in Chicago, I played with so many great folks and you knew because it happened that if a better gig came along, they were gone, you know, and it was, it happened a couple of times. It was just really shocking, you know, but we're all, we're all here. We, this is what we want to do. And, uh, Nobody's nobody's looking for something else. So um, it's it's been a unique thing in in you know thirty years of, of improvising to be in this this particular group working this particular way. I'm very interested in this idea of how we as artists relate to our audience because it's not necessarily a step that I wanted to take. It's just extra work. It's mm-hmm. extra yeah. work to think about like how what is the audience taking away from this? Yeah. What is our relationship to one another? And so in previous iterations of myself as an artist, all I want to do is just put my work out there. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? And hope it's people like, love it. And hope people love yeah. it. And then just go home. Let's just all go it's home. A, yeah. You know? But it really Ultimately, it doesn't work that way, especially, I think, when you're working at a local level and when we're all in this community together, taking that extra time, those extra steps to really think about, why am I doing this? How is it going to be received? How do I want it to be received? And then what happens, happens. I mean, the audience will always find things that you didn't intend or, you know, they're seeing it through their own lens, but being disciplined enough to 
think about the people who are in the chairs watching you yeah. is, I think, really is becoming more and more important to me yeah. every day. What does a rehearsal look like for third date? Because I think people who aren't in a improv group wonder what you do right. when you get together. <laughs> yeah, it's a very common question. Like, uh, how do you uh, how do you rehearse improvisation? I I think the the best analogies are, are like sports analogies. I use this all the time. Greg, Greg Hone, good friend of mine, played together for years in Transactors. Uh, we we are just like big fans of the sports analogy. I'm talking about improvisation, and I think a I think a rehearsal for a uh, an improv group is very much like a basketball team uh, practicing. You know, you start off doing some maybe some fundamental. You warm up. And you maybe do some fundamental stuff, and then you you you, you maybe you're focusing on something specific from you're talking about the last game, or you're scouting for the next game, or something you're prepping for that, and then usually it ends with some sort of a scrimmage. Or and so with with our rehearsals, uh, we l- love working together, and we found that we don't s- we only see each other usually once a week, and so we would often end up talking for the beginning of a rehearsal and feeling like we were wasting time. And in the last few months, I've said, no. <laughs> Actually, this time with us talking, sharing our lives, hearing about the struggles your your kids are going through or you know, Jenny's work in her PhD program or me you know, in my work or my life um, was really a fundamental part of us sort of connecting and knowing where we are and, and all that kind of stuff, So, uh, which is valuable in our work. And so we now budget time for that. We then have like a, a, a series of warm-ups that we like to do. And improv groups typically find two or three warm-ups that they really enjoy and do those a lot. And in the last couple of weeks, we found we, – we sort of morphed our, some of our regular warm-ups and made them kind of different. And, and they've become completely fresh again. They're still like – variations of one of what we were doing but they're we just laugh our butts off playing these games and then uh then we do some warm-up scenes then i'll usually say this is what we're working on tonight and maybe we'll do uh specifically work on group scenes or comic scenes or uh i'll uh work with one person saying this is something i'm working on with you and then we usually end up by doing some sort of a run through especially if we're getting close to a show we'll we'll do sort of a run through and talk about uh what went well you know one of the things that we become very interested in is like that scene was good would it have been better or that scene didn't work would it have worked somewhere else in the show uh and trying to think about placement in the show. I mean, we can't retroactively move something around, but starting to to think about this and get those kind of instincts built into us, when we start getting towards the end of the show, these are the kind of scenes that can be really powerful. Early in the show, the rules may not be as strict about that. So that's... And, and we rehearse once a week for three hours uh, a week. Say you and I are in rehearsal... And you said to me, I want to work on this with you. What is an example of a thing? Well, uh, for a long time, we were having problems with scenes with Nancy and Jenny playing together um, because both of them are so, so great in contrast to Jay and I. Jay and I tend to be uh, the type of improvisers called drivers. We tend to like come out with a strong, strong choice and kind of push that choice, character choice or, or, or 
you know, kind of scene idea. And uh, oftentimes because we're playing jerks yeah. uh, and Jenny and Nancy are just so amazing at, at supporting that and making those characters more jerky or whatever it is, you know, or, or, or they're playing uh, the, the, the person that's more realistic responding to this crazy person and they become the heroes of the scene. Um, so we were trying to find a way to get their scenes to, to have more uh, heat, you know, to be more uh, higher stakes. And so we've been working on that, that a lot. My instinct is often to go a little bit too far out. Like I'm believe, you know, as the director of a company who wants to do really realistic work, I'm the guy that's most likely to make a, a character choice that's hard for other people to support. It's just <laughs> a nut. Um, so I, I, I often have to work on kind of reining myself in. So, um, so yeah, th- those are, that's just an example. Um, but we've kind of worked with everybody on one thing or another. One thing that was kind of a revelation to us is is Nancy had this tendency to hold on to an idea in a scene. Like this is um, my character's point of view and just being intractable about that. And uh, we, ed- we ended up having a number of conversations about this. And what we realized is she was improvising from this um, principle uh, which is you, you have a strong declaration of what your character's deal is, is what they call it in improv. Your character's point of view, you, you, what motivates your character. You have a strong sense of that and you declare that at the, as early in the scene as you possibly can. And then you ruthlessly pursue this point of view throughout the scene. And this is a, a, a mindset that's taught by the Annoyance Theater in Chicago. It's the first place I heard it uh, put out was the Annoyance Theater. And as we started thinking about this morning and, and, seeing when this helped and when this didn't help in scenes, what we started to realize was that works really well if you're improvising in a half hour show and your scenes tend to be a minute and a half to two and a half minutes long. It works great. No one gets tired of your deal in two two minutes and 30 seconds. If we were doing scenes like we do in our shows that are five to eight minutes long and your character doesn't change or evolve and is just this one kind of note and and can't, be knocked off track, it tends to cause problems in scenes. So this was like something that we never knew. Like this was a problem, but we would never have seen it as a problem until we started playing in this particular style. So it became kind of an evolution for all of us. Like, oh, it's really good to have a deal. And also you need to have like a loose grip on that heel, that that deal in in a longer scene. I think that's a really good way to transition to the medical improv uh-huh. because I think we're going to talk about that very thing shortly. Uh-huh. So you are the standardized patient trainer for Duke University School of Medicine yes. and have recently founded the medical improv initiative in the Duke healthcare system. Mm-hmm. How did that initiative come about? Well, before I became the trainer at Duke, um, I heard about this. I, I read a paper online uh, that a woman had written about using improvisation to teach people in medicine how to have better conversations with patients. And uh, really caught my attention. I knew this woman. I When I was in Chicago, we, we weren't friends, but I knew who she was. And her name is Katie Watson. And she's on the faculty, not only of Feinberg School of Medicine at Northwestern, but she's also uh, on the faculty of Second City. So this is a woman who's got a very diverse skill set. And uh, 
they were offering a train the trainer workshop to teach people how to, how to teach this stuff. And this was, um, about five years ago or something. And so I contacted Katie. And even though I wasn't teaching in a medical school, uh, she allowed me to, to come in and, and take this workshop and really had an amazing experience there, met a lot of great people and, uh, came back here and, and started to look for ways to, to teach that. And, uh, I mentioned it in a meeting one time, like I, I'd love to do something like this. And there's a woman who's a patient advocate at the hospital system. And she said, oh, there's somebody that's already doing that. And I was like, are you, what? <laughs> and so she told me this about this guy named Ray Barfield, who was at the Children's Center. Uh, and he's a palliative care physician. And so Ray and I got connected. And Ray is an amazing guy, just a real Renaissance man. And uh, and a guy that it really is looking to innovate in how we teach medical learners. And he had taken some improv classes and felt it was really helpful for how he had had conversations. And so really my whole career at Duke and in, you know, working in uh, medical communication has all been about people sort of opening the door and holding the door and, and, and pulling me through. Um, I, I did the work to get up to the door, but there's no way I'm getting through that door unless somebody else uh, is holding out their hand. So there's been a number of people like that, uh, and Ray is certainly one of them. And my boss, Kelly, has been super, super supportive of me uh, um, pursuing this. So we applied for a grant. We, we started teaching these workshops for free on Saturdays and inviting anybody who wanted to come in the Duke Healthcare System. And... Uh, very quickly, the word got around, and and they they were they were pretty much full every time we offered them. And we got a grant to teach it for a year, and uh, and it sort of grew from there. What value do you think improv has for the healthcare system? Well, I think that they're, you know, I know that this isn't only an, an hour long podcast, so I mean, I could I could really go go on and on. I mean, I think one of the main things is is flexible thinking. You know, this idea of, of walking into a room and you don't know where this conversation is going to go. You don't know if this is going to be a good or bad interaction, if this person is going to be somebody you really connect with or somebody you don't particularly care for. But being able to um, kind of listen and meet them where they are and be clear-headed during those kinds of conversations, that's a skill that I've practiced for many years on stage Believe it or not, it's harder for me to do that in real life when I'm having real high stakes conversations. I've practiced this in this particular place, and that's on stage. And and I feel like my my thinking, the way that I listen, that I pay attention to somebody, the way that I manage those conversations has is is very nuanced because of that experience. And we're hoping to to teach that to people uh, in the in the medical field because we find that. When you're, you know, for most medical conversations, it's just like a kind of a normal conversation. But in the world of medicine, there's also these really, really high stakes conversations. And when you get into those, the way that you manage those, people remember those conversations for years afterwards. And so when you're getting in those high stakes conversations, we want to give people tools and the flexibility to um, be be open to the conversation that you're having and manage that as best you can. And how might that look in a training that you would do for someone who works in the healthcare system? Well, um, it depends upon 
the workshop that I'm leading. Most of the workshops that I lead are like, this is your first introduction to improvisation. So I've, I've taught a lot of intro to improv classes in the theater. And my goal in teaching that class is I want you to have buy-in that this is helpful. So I create, so I pick exercises where I feel like these exercises can't fail. And so if this is your first experience, just like going to see your first improv show, I don't want you to go to the cradle and see that band and go like, I don't like rock and roll music anymore because I've only seen one band and I've never heard a record. I don't know who that person is. Uh, so, so I really want to create exercises where people, you know, I have an idea of how to manage this, this exercise. Um, and, and I know a bunch of takeaways. And so, uh, one of my, uh, one of the classic ones that we do is, we start off having a conversation where I say a simple line of, of dialogue and you say yes and to that. Okay. And then you add some information of your own. So, uh, I'm trying to cut back on coffee. So this morning I only had half a cup. Yes. And then I say something. Yeah. <laughs> like, what would I say? What, what it, whatever you, whatever you say, what, what you say can be true about yourself or me, or you can make something up, whatever you say. Okay, so you say I, I'm I, trying to cut down on no. coffee and I only had half of a cup, yeah. and I say yes, and I had three cups of coffee this morning already. Yes, and I love coffee so much. I wish I could have three cups. I'm jealous. Okay, so we we and and we just have a what we a do conversation. Is we have a two minute conversation where each exchange starts with yes and, and if we're really doing this well. Um, what we'll do is I'll say like, you know, you'll say I had three cups. And so I add information about your three cups of coffee. And then you add information about specifically what I said. What we're trying to avoid is what I call like the parallel conversation where I say like, um, we used to have a dog. I miss having a dog and I wish we could have another one. And you would say uh, something like, uh, I'm not a big fan of dogs, but I want to get a cat. So great. You're talking about, we're talking about pets. So, but you're talking about having a cat and I'm talking about having a dog and these conversations don't quite line up the way that we hope that they would. Or you get people to say like, I, I, I really would like to have a dog. I don't like dogs. Okay. Now we're even farther away from that. So how do we add information that really supports the other person's conversation? And this is where this is taken from real life. If you come home from work and you say, to your husband, I had a really crappy day today. Uh, I don't think I want to go back to work tomorrow. And your husband counters by saying, I had a really bad day too. Uh, I hate my boss. Then it's like, no, no, no. This is conversation is not about how much, how bad your day was. This conversation is about how bad my day was. Like you, you got to listen to that. So, uh, so yeah, it's this idea of like, not just saying yes and, but, but also helping that conversation that right. the person wants to have. And then we do the same thing with yes, but, and how does that make a conversation feel different? It makes it feel very different. Yes. And then we have a, a two minutes of each exchange starts with no. And that feels really different. As a matter of fact, the, my little uh, way to deconstruct or, or debrief after that is like, so why do we do that exercise? Because it's like running a marathon. It feels so good to stop. You know, it's just, it feels really toxic to have that no yes. conversation. And then we loop back to the yes and conversation. Coming back to that just feels like, 
Like even people who the first time say like, oh, it feels very mannered because I don't say yes and it feels kind of forced and like training wheels. I'm like, you just hang with me on this one. I'm like, you know, and then when we come back to it, it feels like, oh boy, that feels so great, you know. So that's a, uh, that's a, one of the exercises that we do. And a lot of people, when they come out of these uh, workshops and they give us feedback, that's one of the ones that, that really sticks with them. Mm. And one of the things that's been a challenge for me in, in uh, leading these workshops is because I've taught improvisation for a long time. And I, and I certainly know what the takeaway is for people who are looking to use this in performance. I, I can speak about that, that pretty knowledgeably, but I'm not a clinician. I don't even have a degree in science. Like I have no clinical experience. So I'm very, reluctant to say, this is what you should take away from this particular exercise. But I have heard other people say, specifically with this idea of yes, but, how do you, like when you're having a conversation with somebody and you really feel like, oh, you're missing the point, like, like, and and the classic one is like, we have have a a family member, they're close to death, um, they're being supported by life support uh, machines and medications and stuff like that. And um, I don't think this person has a chance of, of being cured. And is this really the right thing to do for this person? And very oftentimes you, you hear families say, well, we're just waiting for a miracle. And uh, and this is a very difficult conversation for physicians to have. It's like, um, there's, there's not going to I mean, we've seen this so many times. There's not going to be a miracle. And if you say that, of course, you invalidate this person's whole belief system. And it's that conversation's not going to go well. So uh, talking with Ray Barfield, who's a, also a palliative care physician who deals at the Children's Center. And, you know, he's a pediatric oncologist. A lot of his patients are in this, have this conversation. And uh, and I don't know how he how he does that every day and you know goes back into work and has those kinds of conversations. One thing that that he said is like you can say yes, I really want there to be a miracle too. Who in this room doesn't want there to be a miracle? We would be so happy if you know if your father got up out of that bed and was able to go home tomorrow. We would all be happy about that. I think we also need to have a conversation about what happens if that doesn't happen. We can't get in the way of what God wants to do. If God wants a miracle, there's nothing that we can do that's going to delay that. If that doesn't happen, we also should think about what, what to do. So that's a yes, but without saying yes, but it's like, yes, this is important. And really valuing that yes, like, yes, this this would be great. And now this becomes an and instead of a but. And we also need to think about this in a, in a different way. There's so many parallels between this conversation and parenting. <laughs> a lot of a lot of wisdom right now around you know validating your children's emotions yeah. and and because most of parenting I'm finding is just getting your kids to do what you want them to do right. in a way that is you know calm and easy and maybe even fun. And so one of the ways to do that is to to sort of I know you know I know you're so frustrated right now and I wish that you could eat this entire bag of jelly beans. We're gonna have to put the jelly beans up now. Yeah. And, you know, like, yeah, yeah. It's, 
It's yeah. So so you didn't you didn't do you didn't do a but there. Yeah. You actually separated those into two sentences, which is what you do. It, or yeah. if you're writing it, you put it in two different paragraphs. Like so, let's separate this. Let's take a moment there. I really know you want to eat all these jelly beans. It would be so delicious. We need to put the jelly beans away now. Yeah. They don't really buy it. No, no. But uh, <laughs> no. I'm trying. But the people that have taught me medical communication said, whatever you do, don't try to do your medical communication judo on your kids because they'll, <laughs> they'll figure it out really fast. And I go, don't try it. Don't even try to do that. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah. I love all of this applied improvisation yeah. stuff. It's so rich and I'm swinging back and forth between how difficult it is to apply these practices to our real life yeah. and how helpful it can be if we do the work. Because I have had a similar experience to what you mentioned earlier, where, you know, on stage, I'm infinitely flexible, mm-hmm, right? right? And I'm a great listener and I'm really supportive. And I feel like my you know, my priorities are all in place and I'm generous, like all of this. And then when I come off stage, I become entrenched Yeah. in, you know, but I know, I know this to be true. Right. And this is who I am mm-hmm. and I'm showing up as myself, you know, and I think it is remarkable how those things that seem very simple and that we can even practice, like we can even do that, um, sometimes don't translate or make themselves known to be so much more difficult than we think they might be. Just listening. Yeah. I don't think that's – this is just a Tamara problem. Okay, I think oh, it's so a, I think it's a, a, a person problem. I, I have I have exactly the same the same issues. You know, um, I'm – I'm trying to use some of this, especially in in a professional in my professional environment, because uh, working with a standardized patient program, I deal with a lot of uh, of actors, uh, and you know, trying to learn how to manage those conversations better. And, and there's you know there's a, there's a continuum where it feels like uh, if you do this to some degree, it feels like manipulation. If you do it to another degree, I mean, you, if you go a little bit farther the other way, it feels like you're just really having better conversations and and listening listening better and seeing the per- really trying to see the person and and that's something that uh, that I'm trying to translate from my work as a teacher to my work as a middle manager at at Duke because I do really appreciate the the things that the, that our different SPs bring to our program. I think that they're pretty great. And so, um, and, and now trying to think of them not, not as a group of people that I manage, but a bunch of different individuals. You're right. It's effortful. It takes a lot of effort. Uh, I'm an introvert. So uh, my instinct, it's so much easier for me to talk to 15 SPs in the room than it is for me to talk to one SP in the room sometimes. That's something I'm trying to get better at because it's an important part of my job. And when I have those good conversations, it just feels so good. You know, it feels like, like I'm really, I'm, I'm being the person that I want to be. And, and I feel like that's something I'm constantly trying to get better at being a better person, Mm -hmm. being a better manager, being a better husband to my wife is, is really making the effort and investing in that it's it's hard Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) and and i'm not as good at that as i'm at improv i think 
<laughs> but it sounds like if you just practice improv, we all just practice right. improv in our real lives, like yeah. all of the the tenants. Right. Um, then then we're going to be the best people ever. It, it's not a panacea, but it <laughs> I, it's it, but it helps. It really does help in a lot of a lot of conversations. Uh, so yeah, I'm not I'm not you know being artsy fartsy about it. I don't think. I think it's it is practical. You know. Do you have any stories of of light bulb moments for students via the the medical improv initiative, any feedback you've gotten from them about something that they put into practice in their jobs or just in the room and light bulb experiences? Well, yeah, I've got a, I've got a couple of stories um, uh, and I'll try to keep both of them, uh, uh, maybe three of them kind of brief. Um, One was from the very first uh, workshop we ever taught, which was for, for physical therapy students. Uh, And, uh, we played a game called Red Ball, where you toss around an imaginary red ball. One of the students said afterwards, you know, this is really practical for me because I often find that when I come home and I want to talk with my, I think her boyfriend or maybe it was her fiance, he's like watching TV or something like that. And I'll just come in and start dumping on him and having this conversation and he doesn't really seem invested in it. And what I realized is I didn't ask permission for him from him to have this conversation. I just barged into whatever he was doing and started having this conversation. So we now have started using the term red ball, where you say red ball to the other person and that other person can say yes or no as to whether, yeah, I'm, I want to have that conversation. So that I thought was really an amazing way to apply this. Um, I also had had a uh, a nursing faculty person in one of our last improv workshops that we taught. Uh, we did a we do a warm up game, and it's just kind of a, a a fun icebreaker. And at the end, and at the intermission, she said, uh, "Intermission, I, you know, that's what I call it." <laughs> we took a break, and I middle. didn't even notice. <laughs> but that, yeah, I know. Yeah. That's the way I see the world. Um, so, uh, or I, in my shows, I say at halftime. Like, like well, I really say this. Like, I don't know why. But anyway, when we took our break, she uh, she came up to me and said, "Like, I understand like the point of, of of these other exercises, but what about that warm up? I didn't, I don't understand the point of it." And I said, "Well, the point of it was just to get people up and moving and laughing a little bit, and uh, to sort of show people that this." is not going to be like a regular workshop. We're not going to be watching a PowerPoint slide deck and I'm not going to be lecturing. We're going to be getting up and doing stuff. And what you take away from that exercise is just as valuable as what I would want you to take away from that exercise. Good, bad, whatever you take away is, is, is valuable, I think. And she was like, okay, I get that. I th- kind of wish there was a better takeaway. <laughs> and I was just like, okay, well, all right. You know, I mean, that's, that's my takeaway. Your takeaway is like, I, we need to have another warm up or something like that, but I'm not going to stop doing that because I, I see the value of like, we're coming here to play and I'm setting the table for that. Mm-hmm. And you can appreciate that. And if you don't, then that's, I'm okay with that too. And uh, the last one I would mention is uh, we had a, a game called the box and with the box, uh, basically, I just ask you questions about an imaginary box in front of you. Tell me what the box looks like. What is the box made of? Everything you say is true. Every, you know everything about the box. You know, there's no question I can ask you that you cannot answer. And so at the end of that game, I often ask the person who is asking the questions to see how well they were listening. I'll ask them, describe the box that the other person told you about. And we got the description of the one of the. I mean, you hear like all these weird boxes. If you do it for, uh, you know, 
t- kids doing theater. It's always some like, it's a little pill and inside is World War II, except uh, <laughs> the Nazis are uh, unicorns who fire lasers. It's just like, okay, great. And a lot of people describe these very realistic boxes. And this one woman described the box and we discovered it was her significant other. And it was what was inside the box was love and and understanding and a life together. I was like, holy cow, I've never thought of a box as being another as being another person. But like, so that to me was like, you don't have to be a creative, so-called creative theater type. It's just these people are will constantly surprise you at uh, their ability to reflect on this stuff. And and what they come up with is so much better a lot of times than what I will think like that's this is the point of this exercise so i have to be really open to that i remember an exercise that i saw you lead once i don't know if this is the name of it but mm-hmm. i always called it building an environment mm-hmm. and it's it's a collaborative exercise maybe you can explain it better um where each person gets a sentence to describe mm-hmm. a, a place yeah. and the idea is to build that space together mm-hmm. by listening to what has come before and then yeah. adding to it and I actually used that exercise in a, I don't know, a, a workshop that I did about communication or team building or something like that. And people were not good at it at all. I mean, the first, so we would do it a couple of times because the first time it was basically people trying to wrestle control of the description of the room. Right. Um, and come in, they would stand in line and think about what they wanted to be, be in the room and come hell or high water, they were going to say that thing when it was their turn regardless of what had come before. Right. And so it was it led to all of these really interesting ideas about how we listen, how we come with preconceived notions about how this conversation is going to go. And so right. it was really interesting to apply that to um, communication in, in the office. And what made me think of it is you talking about how um, what other people come up with sometimes is richer than what we individually come up with. And it's that sort of collaborative, magical creation that can happen if we just open ourselves to that possibility of discovering it together. Yeah. I think it goes back to this idea of being a supporting player. And I think it goes against a lot of people's instincts to to do that, to sort of say, I'm going to support what's out there rather than I'm going to do my own thing. People feel like it's more creative to put something weird in the space rather than to, to add clarity to it. So, uh, so when you play with somebody who's really uh, supportive or a team that feels really supportive, it's, uh, it's really an amazing thing. That, that to me is one of the, the most amazing things about uh, working with um, people that you really like working with, the people that you respect as players, is um, they say yes to you a lot. And they make your ideas better. And I think that's one of the reasons why people, when you play in an improv group and you really, you have success on stage and you like working together off stage and all those, all those things, that it, it's this really, really powerful experience mm-hmm. because you're, you're working with people who say yes to you a lot. And you're getting, getting to look at relationships from a lot of different angles because in one scene, you'll be a doctor and I'll be a patient. In another scene, we'll be brother and sister. In another scene, you, you know, you'll be my daughter and I'll be your father. You know, we get to look at all these different iterations of our relationship and how we would, would, um, react to each other. And, and, and I think it's, it, it bonds people in a really strong way. So w- when I say that, you know, 
I, I think about people that I really enjoy playing with. And I think, you know, I refer to that as I love, I love that person. And, uh, it, it, it re- that's really the way that it feels. It, it's, I think that's what bonds a lot of people. And it's, you know, people make these deep friendships in improv groups, which is, difficult to do when you're an adult. I read some sort of study that talked about how people become friends. And one of the results of it was people who basically people who make things together become friends the quickest. In particular, they uh, emphasized people who sing songs together. So if you get in a room with with a chorus or just a group of people singing a song, you will feel and you sing with them, you will feel much closer to them much more quickly, hmm. which I think, I think there are some parallels there to improv, just wow. the way that you are with each other in the room, listening and, and creating together. And I don't know the bond that you're talking about. And I think that in terms of the medical improv, just this idea that we are on the same team is yeah. really powerful in healthcare. I imagine that people enter that space not feeling like they're on the same team and not feeling like they can say yes or be flexible. You know, it's, it's a, the system as it's currently set up and our perceptions around it, uh, there is a lot more rigidity and a lot more me versus you. And, and because it's so, it's such an emotional place. And so we then become, you know, doubly entrenched. And um, so I, I can imagine that this, has so much power, this type of thoughtful work and, and these exercises that you're providing just can, could be really transformative. Yeah. It's, it has the opportunity to transform people. And I don't know what we do about transforming the system. I mean, I think a, a, a big problem that we have with people feeling adversarial or people coming in with their own agenda, not really listening is because of how uh, they've monetized the, the medical system and they've made these appointments being like 15 minutes long and you have to do all this stuff to kind of CYA, uh, to damage control to the institution and everything. And so people have to document stuff on the computer. Now they have to document it in real time. You can't even have a com- real mm-hmm. conversation with a person and leave the room and document it. So I think there are a lot of institutional problems there. And the question is, how do we still em- encourage people to do good work in that crappy environment. It still feels like the big problem is the environment. Um, it de- tends to dehumanize patients and providers. Um, so we're, tr- but we are trying to give them some, some tools to be more present in those conversations and, uh, try to make the best that we can of that time. And, you know, if nothing else, this gives people something to reflect on and and things that they can pull themselves from it. I I don't have solutions for any of those kinds of problems. I don't claim to. So we've talked about third date, medical improv, Mm -hmm. your work and your kind of come from. In thinking about what's next or what could be, do you have some goals or some aspirations for any of those things if you Mm -hmm. let your imagination run wild? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> well, I hope to keep working with Third Date as long as I can. Um, I love the people in that group, and uh, and I know that that's not a forever thing. That someday it will go away. And every, you know, if we have a couple of rehearsals that are kind of flat in a row, I have to remind myself, you know, I've got to, I can't be asleep at the wheel. I got to put 
my energy into this thing because I'm going to look back on this time and and wish I had done more or wish uh, wish it had been made I'd made better use of that time because I know I'm going to miss it. So um, I'm trying to enjoy the experience and not sleepwalk through that experience. Try to be as present during that experience as I can. As for uh, medical improvisation. One of my kind of secret goals in life for a long time has been to teach improvisation on a college level. There's not really a, uh, a template for that. Um, there, as I mentioned earlier, there's really no um, college programs I know where you can major in improvisation. And there's something that feels wrong about that. So I'm a person who's done this for 30 years. You know, I've taught for 25 years. I've did my apprenticeship. I did my finishing school in Chicago for eight years. I've studied with all of these big names in improvisation, and I have no letters behind my name. You know, there's nowhere I could go to get that kind of legitimacy to show people that I really know what I'm talking about. You've got to come to one of my classes. You've got to come to one of my shows, and then maybe I'll have a good night, and I'll go like, oh, that guy is a PhD in improv, <laughs> but probably not. Uh, so uh, trying to get that legitimacy is is been tough to do. And a lot of it is, you know, I've gotten people who are, who've been willing to teach me a lot and, and hold the door open for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so my hope is that, you know, in, in maybe a couple of years, we'll um, get this to, uh, to be a, a regular curriculum item at the uh, School of Medicine. That would be wonderful. You know, in the meantime, I'm getting a lot of offers to teach it kind of on the outside. People are seeing the value of this and it's catching on really fast. I mean, it's part of the curriculum at the Cleveland Clinic and Northwestern and Stanford and Johns Hopkins, and there are a lot of places. And Duke is sort of starting to position itself as as one of the leaders in this. So, um, so that's going to be really great. Thank you, Dan, so much for this conversation. Thank you, Tamara. It was lovely talking with you. Wonderful talking with you. Artist Soapbox is a listener-supported podcast. If you listened to the end of this episode and you're hearing my voice right now, you should probably get on over to our Patreon page, patreon.com slash artistsoapbox, and kick us a few dollars a month to help support this podcast. For information and show notes and more good stuff, you can go to our website, artistsoapbox.org, or you can reach me at artistsoapbox at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening, and we're out.